Can you describe yourself in three words? No, I probably can't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, That's such a difficult question. Um, I'm a different person to different people. I am single-minded. I think climate change is the biggest threat facing the world, and I'd like to go and do something about that. I am stubborn. Um, you're not going to convince me otherwise. You're not going to convince me we should be focusing on on something else. And I am energized. How's that? Um, uh, there's a lot of bad going on in the world, but there are a lot of people doing some really impressive, really exciting things. I'm, I'm Australian. That's my fourth word. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Global Health Lives podcast. I'm Dylan Dovikuman. Today, I'm with Dr. Nick Watts, a climate change academic and leader. Nick is a medical doctor from Australia who's been working in public health and specifically climate change. He's led the Lancet Commission on Climate Change and Lancet Countdown, and now he's the Chief Sustainability Officer in the NHS. Nick, fantastic to have you on the podcast. Dylan, thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. So initially, when you started medical school, you wanted to be a neurosurgeon, but very quickly that changed to public health and then to climate change specifically. And for me, that path was much slower over many years. But what led you to this revelation that public health was your path? Yeah, and and maybe my retelling of it makes it sound cleaner than it was, right? I was, I was <laughs> that's up. always the case, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I'm sure my clinical supervisors in medical school would say otherwise. But um, my retelling, I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to help, right? Mm-hmm. Medicine seemed like a good way to do it because you could be sure, you could be certain that you were doing good. The patient would walk out the door healthy and they would thank you and, you know, you would pay yourself on the back. Um I got into medical school, studied very, very hard to get there. Um, two early things. I think my second lecture, um, Professor Helena Iredell, um, uh was a public health professor who, um, who started talking about these sort of radical concepts that she'd just come across or the medical community just come across on um, the social determinants of health. The fact that, you know, stuff outside of the four walls of that neurosurgical operating theatre I so desperately wanted to wander into, you know, might matter. Um, Which, looking back on it, the idea that that was novel is sort of hilarious. Um, (laughs) The other other thing that I think probably really caught me early on, I went to a medical student conference, um, a, a global health conference, and that, again, was, so if one thing opened your eyes beyond, you know, the four walls of an operating theatre. Um, the next was the uh, sort of strange H-shaped boundary of Australia, realizing that there was, uh, you know, a need for a need for people that were able to engage in things beyond beyond just sort of political boundaries and beyond. I grew up in Perth, beyond um, beyond where I grew up in Perth, and so I think those are the sort of pivot moments. But really, it then took, and you know, I'm still sort of on that journey right over the course of years trying out slowly dipping my toe in moving further and further saying hey this looks interesting so i'm I'm interested that if this idea to help people and when you work clinically there's a very tangible Mm. result and contact whereas public health you don't get that or you know you are part of something that may change 10 years later how how do you cope with that now yeah and you know i want to help people is a pretty naff thing to say but um for want of a better you know uh, word someone once told me that um 
it sounds a bit naff, uh, except for the people that understand it. Um, and then they go, yeah, I identify with that. Um, but that's the trade-off. You're, sorry, to your question. <laughs> that's the trade-off, right, is, is uh, direct and individual or uh, indirect and population scale, right? And um, so to some extent, you need to have some, you know, good proper program evaluation-y sort of metrics to say, hey, you are doing a good job. This is having an effect. There's impact, mm-hmm. there's outcome, there's output. Um, and that's all important. Um, so you must always have that because you can't actually visualize the patient walking out of the out of the sort of emergency department. But I sometimes see underneath that question is a question of what motivates you, why are you excited, right? And so mm. for me, I guess the thing that I get that you that I get excited about comes from the people I get to work with, right? So so you get excited because you feel like you are doing something that is helpful, that is valuable but you're doing it with some of the smartest people you could ever imagine, um, some of the most passionate people you could ever imagine. And so, like, I've almost replaced the motivation you might get from waving that patient out the emergency department door with the sort of enjoyment I get from the people I get to work with around me on some of these big, big issues. So you talked about growing up in Perth and the way you describe it. It seems like this idyllic place and you were one of four children and you kind of bucked the family trend to become a lawyer. Um can you tell me a little bit about living in Perth and, and what your family think about your career now? Yeah, Perth's lovely. Everyone should go there. Um, you should spend two weeks, three weeks. Um, it's a nice place to be during a pandemic. Um, uh, community transmission is very low. Uh, it is isolated, though. Perth is a long, long way away from the next, you know, biggest city over a million people. Singapore is sort of pretty much closer than Sydney um, to, to Perth. Uh, but it's a lovely, lovely place to be. My father, my brother, my sisters um, are all lawyers or training in law. Um, I wasn't the black sheep. Everyone was very happy that I was moving into medicine. That was, you know, that was a solid profession. Mm-hmm. Um, I became the black sheep when slowly they, they started to realise that maybe I wasn't going to sort of take quite the standard, you know, route I said I might in, in high school. I wasn't yeah. quite as interested in neurosurgery. Um, I, and that's kind of the exciting slash like problematic part of public health right it is still emerging as a, sort of a, a dedicated pathway it's been around for a long time i think the problem is it's such a broad concept you know what the hell is public health sort of thing um so uh, in some ways i think it's probably only very recently that they would say oh yeah nick yeah he's finally got a real job um uh, even though <laughs> even though i might argue that uh, i've had a real job for a little while <laughs> I mean, I come from a medical family, and I think they don't really know what I do or understand what, yes. what it is. Yeah, you know, I should be seeing patients, but I'm doing podcasts. <laughs> well, that's uh, quite quite. I, the problem is almost worse, probably, for doctors, right? I, I just yeah. All of my friends from medical school, all the people I, you know, used to work with clinically, I, this question of oh, that's so great. Someone should do public health. I don't know what it is, but someone should do it. I've definitely been told that. <laughs> So you went to medical school and you had this kind of amazing set of people who ran the medical school that just Mm -hmm. let you do things. And you worked in change management in the UK. You did an internship at the WHO. You did an MSc in politics, philosophy and economics. And to me, that just shows the power of not having these rigid rules. So, you know, maybe you wouldn't be here today or might have taken you five or 10 years longer 
Yeah. Can, can you reflect on your, your medical school time? And it, it probably relates almost directly back to the conversation just before, right? Um, I was lucky enough to meet a couple of people early on. I was at the University of Western Australia. Um, meet a couple of people early on, Professor Roland Kaiser, um, who was one of the people sort of in charge of student affairs and, and a few other people like Helena that I've mentioned. Um, and I think I was somehow able to convince them that, listen, I want to work in public health. I want to work in some of these broader determinants across boundaries. You know, eventually that turned into climate change and, and health, sustainable development. Um, and take me seriously when I say, I will go and pursue genuine opportunities to do this. I will go and pursue research mm. opportunities, you know, over in the United Kingdom. I will pursue internships, you know, with the World Health Organization. I will pursue, you know, a master's. Um, and I was really lucky because they did take me seriously. Um, they sort of turned around and said, okay, we'll, we'll put a bit of trust in you um, mm. uh, and create some flexibilities in, you know, an otherwise pretty rigid medical uh, sort of medical education program. Um, uh, sitting exams at slightly different times to, to other students, you know, being able to do more of the clinical time that you have to do. You have to do a lot of clinical time as a med student um, on the weekends, right? Mm. And I would I would do more. <laughs> I would sort of show up and do night shifts and things like that um, uh, in a way that I think most med students probably didn't, but it freed me up to go and be able to create a bit of a career. There's something um, I need to go and find both of them um, and tell them this, but there's something very, very special about that, I think. And then after medical school, you started working clinically, doing a residency, and then you set up these two NGOs, both in sort of environmental climate change, right? Yeah, and again, right, uh, when you look uh, backwards on the thing, um, it's far cleaner, right, and there's a nice little retrofit in the story. Uh, the reality is messy, right? The, the reality is I slowly started to do bits and pieces. I started to do things as a medical student. I started to, uh, you know, slowly try to transition my time away from sort of clinical work into into sort of more public health, more climate change and, and health. Um, I benefited, I think, from the fact that there wasn't an enormous amount happening on health and mm. climate change at the time. Some really, really impressive people that have been there for two decades, really pushing things forward. But you hadn't quite got to that like groundswell where you would say, "Oh yes, that's a that's a part of public health, climate change, the environment." You know, in some ways, it's one of the classic parts, right? But environmental health is is you know one of the first the first reasons public health, population health existed. But some of that got lost along the way. I, so I benefited from the fact that you know. Uh, there was an open space when someone said, hey, I think we need to all come together to collectively increase our uh, bargaining power, our lobbying power um, through the Global Climate and Health Alliance. There was a wealth of NGOs and medical societies that said it, absolutely. And indeed, the same in the United Kingdom when we said to each of the royal colleges, the College of Pediatrics and Child Health, the physicians, the surgeons, the College of Nursing, um, climate change is important to your work. They said, yes, it is. And we were able to say, well, come and join us in the UK Health Alliance on climate change. And they said, fantastic, because we need to, you know, start swinging some punches. And when was that? What, what kind of time were we talking about there? Somewhere between sort of 2012 to 2015, maybe. Not too long. Yeah. So then you came to the UK and tell me how you got involved with the Lance of Climate Change and Lance of Countdown. Uh, yeah. Came to the United Kingdom. Um, uh, stumbled across the Godless College, across um, University College London. Um, 
I had, through my travels, bumped into a few people like uh, Richard Horton, the editor of The Lancet, um, uh, Professor Hugh Montgomery, an intensive care physician um, uh, up at the Whittington, um, and Professor Anthony Costello um, uh, at the Institute of Global Health, um, and stumbled from that godless college into a room, a discussion with them, um, saying, hey, this is important. We should do more on this. Um, but like we did in 2009 with the first commission on climate change and health that talked about climate change as the biggest global health threat of the 21st century. Mm. Um, that's inadequate. We don't need people only talking about the problem. We know what the problem is. We have enough information and evidence to act. What we need to do is start talking about the solutions. And so we pulled together over the course of three, four years, um, uh, a second commission um, to do exactly that, to look at the pol policy responses to respond to climate change um, and then prioritise them according to uh, you know, the way a doctor, a nurse, a public health professional would see and understand the world. And Lancet Countdown has really grown from there to this big kind of organisation, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, that's the problem with success. You have to start repeating yourself. I remember, so we published, um, <laughs> 2015, we published one of our... Uh, uh, sort of first reports and in it at the very very back it um said something like well we'll be back every year because we need to track and monitor progress we need to know how the world is doing this is really important you know and we'd secured some funding from the welcome trust and we'd secured the buy-in of all the politics and everything you needed and we were celebrating that night of successful launch um uh, we'd had you know videos of support from the prince of wales and you know meetings in the white house and everyone felt very you know, good about themselves. Yeah. And someone said to me, Nick, I can't believe you said you were going to do this every year. You must have to start drafting your next one very soon. And I, <laughs> I sort of froze and I was like, oh my, what have I done? Um, but, but we did. So I, I think in migration, we learned from you that we, yeah. we said we'll come back, but we didn't put a time frame on it. Yes. It's an uncomfortable pace, but that's what you need. You need to be uncomfortable with the pace, right? We don't, you know, climate change, you want to meet the Paris Agreement, you take seriously that 1.5 degrees is an important target then you need to hit a 7.6 percent mm. annualized reduction in emissions year on year on year five to ten years in a row if you stop for two or three years if you skip a beat and say actually we'll be back in two or two years or three years that turns to 15.4 percent of compounds and you cannot reduce emissions 15.4 percent per year COVID has only managed to do it by about 18 mm. uh, eight percent sorry um uh, yeah yeah and so and so there is this enormous sense of urgency that sometimes we forget. And I think there's something special about the data yeah. the countdown can produce that sort of helps with a bit of that. But, uh, absolutely. I guess the, the urgency comes from outside in this issue that sure. it has to be done and it has to be done by this time. I, I remember when you came to UCL and one thing that always impressed me was how you were dealing with so many difficult issues, contentious issues, disagreements between people you work with sometimes. Yeah. And you just seem to manage it all so comfortably. And that, that's <laughs> something I, I always wanted to learn from you. How, how, do, you, how do you do that? I'm glad it, I'm glad it appears that way. Um, I think, so certainly um, we manage a lot of disagreements. At the countdown, we had 60, 70 academics um, mm. working on this, world-leading, big, big names, mm. big, impressive people with impressive uh, sort of track records and professions behind them. Um, we agreed on basically nothing. Right, um, but that's sort of what academics are, are paid to do in some in somewhere. Um, I think the the thing that we did really really well was that we valued the individual 
right? We, we understood that actually we were on a little bit of a journey together. And so the people that started this work with us with the commission back in like 2011, 2012, um, are the people that are still working on the countdown today, eight years later. And there's something really, really special in that because you have the arguments, you have the disagreements, you get upset with each other and then you get over it and you move forward and you come to understand one another's languages and mm -hmm. the way that we think about the world and understand the world. Um, uh, I think the one thing I've learned above anything else is that relationships matter, right? People matter and being able to work with people you want to work with that are going to be on side and are going to, you know, at least have a good faith discussion is so important. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we were lucky in the countdown. I think the biggest strength of the Lancet countdown um, is the people, is the networks and the relationship and the, you know, for want of a, you know, that's terrible word, word um, the sort of family that's built up around it. No, absolutely. I mean, in terms of trying to bring together groups or people I work with, I look at that sort of emotional intelligence. How do people interact mm -hmm. and how do they work with each other? And that that's more important than... I don't know it's, it's how smart someone is, maybe. Oh, totally. It's, especially, especially for the things that we're talking about, like climate change or like migration, right? Not the simple issues, the mm. big issues, the big complex issues that cross political, cultural, uh, linguistic boundaries, cross, cross disciplinary boundaries. What you need is people that are going to be able to understand and work with each other. You don't need the brightest, brightest, brightest of minds. You need people that are, that are going to sit on the edge of that new frontier of science as it progresses. So on the on this kind of similar theme, so climate change has become hugely politicized, especially in the US, the kind of Republican Democrat debates. And conversation that I've had with myself many times, mostly around migration, is how do we bridge that divide? How do we speak to those people in on the different sides? Yeah, it's tougher. It um the worst thing you can do as we've seen in both migration and climate change, is politicised and polarise an issue, right? It's so unhelpful. And it, it, it can sometimes be seductive because, you know, you're on one side of that polarisation and it feels good when everyone in your, you know, echo chamber or your Twitter feed is agreeing yeah. with you. But, yeah. but you're not helping. I often crudely joke that one of the problems that climate change has had is that for too long it has been about polar bears and it has been about 2100 and it has been about a country that no one could possibly care about, like New Zealand right something a long long way away that you know i mean we we, we apologize to our listeners yeah, of course, of course, yeah. no 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 you're right the the thing that you need to do is bridge that bridge that spatial bridge that temporal gap make this feel more immediate more personal more urgent um and so you do that by going to where people are people care about their local community they care mm. about uh you know their small business they care about their faith and they care about their health. And so the idea here is if we can start to understand climate change as not just an issue that affects polar bears, because it absolutely does, but an issue that uh, affects children with asthma and not only affects New Zealanders in 2100, because it absolutely does, but also affects all of us. No country, no population is immune and we're being affected today. Uh, I think that's how you start, to, you start to break down some of that, right? Health isn't always, but if you do it right, health is a pretty non-partisan issue. Um, uh, it, it, it should be something we can all get behind um, because, you know, we understand intuitively what that child with asthma uh, looks like. We don't understand intuitively what a part per million of CO2 equivalent, you know, looks like. Yeah, uh, no, I, I completely agree. I in my PhD, I worked a little on air pollution, um, indoor air pollution, yeah. actually. Um, 
and I remember at the end, I you know had these. It was a quantitative project measuring air pollution levels, estimating personal exposure, and our participants asked me what you know what were the results, and I could give a number, but it was meaningless. Yes, yeah. to say it, it's high. And yeah, it's very concentrated. It's very high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, linking it back to them, their lives, what they were experiencing. So these were mothers cooking on open fires using biomass and uh, wood. And so, I, the leading, uh, the leading cause of mortality for under fives uh, from pneumonia, household air pollution. Is that right? Oh, it it, it, it doubles the risk of yeah. childhood pneumonia. Yeah, 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 it's insane. Yes, but that's um, that's that's the thing we can get right. That's what we understand. So. Now you have this new job in the NHS, and soon after you started, you announced the Net Zero NHS Pledge. And, and I remember reading this and just being surprised and impressed and thinking, wow, can, can we do that? Um, the NHS is a system of 1.3 million passionate, uh, intelligent um, people who, you know, in some way, shape or form have taken some version of a Hippocratic Oath. First, I'm going to do no harm, and hey, I'm going to look out for my patients, I'm going to look out for people. Um, we know that uh, 98% of NHS staff would like to see the NHS work more sustainably, and we think that they're going to help help us with this. Um, so to your question of, God, can we do this? Yeah, 1.3 million people could do this. 1.3 million people could absolutely design the future of healthcare. And the NHS has been a part of a long, long, proud history of firsts, right? the first universal uh, sort of healthcare system, universal coverage, the first hip replacement, um, first IVF, uh, IVF treatment, first mass vaccination program, the first uh, COVID vaccine um, yep. uh, only, a, only a little while ago, um, and the world's first healthcare system to commit uh, to net zero carbon um, by 2040 for the stuff we control and by 2045 for the, for the entire scope, all of it, all of the things we could be responsible for. Um, so I would say, if anyone can do it, the NHS can do it, um, uh, and that, and you know, whether whether we're right or not, is kind of the fun thing that we get to find out. But everything I have seen so far since I've joined the NHS is that it's going to give it a really good crack. Um, that there is passion, there is enthusiasm. Mm. People, I got off a call with um, a few regional directors um, uh, a couple of hours ago. Um, the question wasn't. Nick, we are so busy with COVID. Please, please, can you know? Can we deal with this later? The question was: these things have to be dealt with together. We must deal with climate change and the response to COVID at the same time. How can we move faster? How can you and I work together to move faster and faster? We need to be bolder. Um, so yeah, it is a pretty ambitious commitment, um, but uh, it's been a lot of fun since I joined. I've only joined a, a couple of months ago. I mean, that's that's fantastic to have that political buy-in to start yeah. with and you know to be pushing you to, to 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 go faster rather than having to convince people yeah it's changed hey um and so what i should say is the nhs has done this for a while 2008 mm. the climate change act comes along mm. in the united kingdom um it says hey we're going to reduce emissions by a fair amount um the nhs in response sets up in 2009 a sustainable development unit um they spent the better part of a decade slowly going around the system, quickly going around the system, 
convincing people, just planting the seed in the back of your mind saying, hey, this is possible and this might be good. You might improve air quality. You might improve diets and patients' experience of healthcare. You might increase accessibility as you move to more digital care. Um, creating the conditions for the moment when, uh, when the question gets posed, well, couldn't we really take this seriously and become that world, world's first healthcare system? Um, the answer was, yeah, let's do that. That sounds great. That sounds like not a climate change and health program, but like a program to define the future of healthcare. And that's something that absolutely the NHS should be doing. And how do you see this moving forward? So hand in hand with COVID and what, what are the things that we should look out for in the near future at least? Yeah, so we have to be sen sensitive, right? The system is under pressure. Um, uh, the system is uh, behaving admirably. Right, the you know, you're my friends, the sort of nurses, the physiotherapists, mm -hmm. um, the healthcare workers across the system in response to this crisis. Um, uh, you know, you, you, there's no point coming up with impressive adjectives because they are all inadequate. And yet, we need to understand that the same drivers of inequality in the mortality from COVID very very similar right air pollution is, is something we've talked about very very similar to the same drivers of climate change we can't respond to one crisis whilst making another worse we can't sort of lose this opportunity to uh, to shift shift these discussions um so it has to it necessarily has to uh, work work together those those two issues um i think the most important piece will be making sure that like i said it's not one person it's 1.3 million Right. So the most important piece is this can't be, we have a new greener NHS team. It's exciting. It's big. It's energized. Um, but it's not going to be enough. We need people that are passionate and care about climate change within each of the regions across the NHS. We need them in the medicines team and the procurement team, and the ambulance team, right? In the nursing team and the allied health professionals team at the national level, um, down at the local level. And so that's what the next 12 months are about. Right, they are about really using sort of uh, this opportunity as a bit of a launching pad to take us into the next ten years. What about the people who are not so passionate? So I imagine there's a whole spectrum in the NHS, like anywhere else. How do you um, encourage, convince those people? Sure. So, so people have competing priorities, right? We all. Um, <laughs> I think I first you got to start with you know, a belief that everyone's fundamentally a good person, right? Everyone is interested in, if you work in the NHS, you are there because you care, mm. right? Um, now, you don't have to care specifically about climate change. That's okay. Um, you may have other pressures. You may have other priorities and things that you'd like to deal with. But I'm pretty sure we can all get on board with the idea of clean air. And I'm pretty sure we can all get on board with the idea of less fast food and more mm. nutritious uh, mm. food, more fruit, more vegetables, we can all get on board with the idea that we would like to live in a community that is safer, that has more green space, that uh, you know where kids can walk to walk to school, where we can go for a run um, without sort of problems with traffic or without uh, without sort of poor air quality. Um, we can all get on board with the idea that we would like the NHS to continue to be universally accessible. We need you know more digital care. We need to change the way that we deliver care so it's closer to home, so it's more personalised. Um, and so to the extent that anyone can get on board with any one of those things, then I think we have business we can do together, right? Because all of those things, all of those core fundamentals of being a good nurse or being a good doctor or being a good health professional, they're just core to the response to climate change. 
Um, and so, and so, I almost reject the the premise of the question. I reckon every single one of the, the sort of one point three million and and all of the patients that the NHS serves um, could get on board with one of those things. So, outside of work, um, I I love that your hobbies also involve working, and that you're <laughs> so passionate and devoted to this, this topic. Yeah, it's always an awkward conversation when someone says, what do you do outside of work or work or what are your hobbies? Because my response is, oh, no, no, no. I, I learned early on that if you can be lucky enough to do something you love and want to do with a burning passion, um, you know, you won't want to stop. I love mm -hmm. the stuff I get to. I wake up every morning bound out of bed ready to take on, you know, the next day and on Saturday and on Sunday and, you know, it, it's such a joy, so much fun. Um, uh, you obviously need a few more parts of your life, and then otherwise you become pretty one-dimensional. Um, rugby, uh, follow the rugby pretty closely. Closely, paradoxically, um, interested in in uh, Formula One. Um, Formula E is something that's really exciting, and to the extent that we can start to pervade uh, electric vehicles and sort mm -hmm. of carbon mm -hmm. solutions into popular culture, Lewis Hamilton starting up the Formula E uh, team next year. Wow. That's so, so cool. Um, uh, and then I probably would say I do the thing that, um, you know, obviously everyone does. I hang out with my, with my friends. The, the difference is I think where we started um, uh, talking about um, my friends are the people I work with because I get to work with some of the most exciting, passionate, inspired, intelligent people um, I, I know. And so uh, it's just a... It's it's nice to be able to have both that personal and that professional connection at the same time. It just makes it makes everything so much easier. I remember something you said to me that what we do is a privilege, and and that's yeah. something I've said before that to be able to do this kind of job and to be paid for this is a privilege. It's it's not something that most people can do, and I I don't wake up and bound out of bed i find it very difficult to wake up every morning. but, <laughs> yeah, but it, it's true I, I i'm happy to carry on doing it and not go to sleep and, yeah um I, yeah. I suspect i suspect uh and we should never tell your employer this on a on a you know public podcast but you would do what you were doing for free right i i certainly would i would do this for free if i could um yeah uh, i love it Fantastic. Nick, thank you so much for joining me today. It's, it's wonderful to hear about your life and your work and your plans, um, plans in the future taking taking forward. Um, it feels like the medical profession and humans generally have just been sleepwalking into this, what is an existential crisis? And it's such a privilege to speak to someone who's been working so hard to wake us up from this. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you. Thank you to my guest, Nick Watts. The episode was produced by Amaran Utaya Kumar Kumarasamy and myself, with artwork by Beth Stingcombe, and our theme song is Paper Stars by Leah Maiden. This is a Global Health Lives podcast. Thank you for listening.